Season three, ladies and gentlemen, of Chewing the Gristle is upon us. We've got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're going to let the good times roll. Are you ready to pound the gristle? We ride. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we have the incendiary Philip Sace. Back in the day, you saw him with Jeff Healy, Melissa Etheridge, but now he fronts his own absolutely savage blues rock ensemble. Ladies and gentlemen, this week, Chewing the Gristle with Philip Sace. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the time is at hand once again for Chewing the Gristle. We have the mighty and majestic Philip Sace here, a uh, guitar-wielding potentate, awesome singer, great entertainer in general. I've been a fan for quite some time, and uh, it's so good to be able to converse with you on this fine day. Philip, how the hell are you? Oh my gosh, Greg, I, I consider this a privilege and an honor to be chatting with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I'm feeling good, and I've been really looking forward to this. Excellent! Yeah. So yeah. I see behind you that glorious uh, piece of furniture that you are often doing your uh, Instagram posts in front of, and uh, they are incendiary, my friend. Oh, you're, you know what? Um, thank you. And in return, um, I recognize the setting where you are as well from your incendiary uh, performances online or, or videos that are always mind-boggling, inspiring, and Truly, truly unique and special. Oh, well, thank you very much. Coming from you, that is that is high praise, and I appreciate it. Come on, As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell everybody I see for the next three hours to eat shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I was not ready for that. That was, that was, uh, that was very funny. Uh, you know what? I needed that. Thank you. That was very funny. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about what you got going on. Currently, uh, you know, now that uh, it's it's interesting because, you know, as the cove is all of a sudden diminishing or is going away just in time for World War Three, we won't get into that per se. Because uh, I don't, in the immortal words of Brad Delp from Boston, I don't want to down you. I want to make you high. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes. But uh, I will say this. It's been interesting because I've been this whole time during the Cove, you know, we're doing whatever we need to do to make, uh, to make Lutsky on the home front, you know, doing live streams, doing all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden uh, we get kind of this, this faux sense of security last spring where it's like, Hey, maybe in the fall, we can actually start doing some gigs. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, everyone's booking everything now. And then, of course, everything goes back under a rock again due to, you know, Delta and Omicron and whatever else. And now it seems, oh, no, no, no we're, we're back on again. So but the thing is, everyone's scrambling at the same time to get work. And and um, it's just interesting. So I'm wondering how you're approaching this new paradigm going forward. Do you have stuff that's already set? Are things kind of coming together? Did you have stuff in place that you luckily are now still going to be able to do? Uh, how is it all kind of shaping out for you? Well, Greg, that's that's awesome. And, and I totally, totally agree with the way that you sort of summarized um, with what the experience has been like, right? As working musicians, trying to get the gigs, they're in, they're not in. You're getting ready to go. Suddenly, it's someone's got COVID. You can't go. Like, it's just all of the, the labyrinth of trying to figure this out is... Uh, it's more than certainly for me personally that I've been able to wrap my head around. It's been very frustrating. Other times, you know, you, you start getting excited, looking forward to it, only to have it pulled away. The, at this point, um, it, it is. It's kind of like a, a giant traffic jam of everybody trying to get their gigs now. And so it's like rush hour in on the 405 or something, right? It's like, holy shit, I'm excited. I'm ready to play. Let's go. Oh, there's no gigs because everybody's trying to get their gigs. So um, I'm in a little bit of a holding pattern right now, um, kind of kind of looking out and saying, I thought we had gigs, but nope, they got bumped. OK, so, yeah. Uh, so I'm in that in that in that sort of we're, we're circling at this point, trying yes. to find some some opportunities. And and as you said, you know, the 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 cash, you know, when the when the when the dough hits the bakery, so to speak, you know, it's like. It, you need to be working. We need to be working. This is uh, not not a great scenario. There's only so long you can 
either sell off some pieces of gear you're not using or dip into the savings. And um, only so long you can lean on your your life partner if you're so lucky to have a, a supportive partner in that way. And so, so it's a frustrating time. Um, psychologically, uh, I've been impacted in that way as well. And uh, yeah, playing here with this blue piece of furniture behind me, this is really the main room that I can play in. My wife works from home, so she has an office in the in the back of the house. And my neighbors on either side are truly patient, wonderful, beautiful people. So I'm just, you know, trying to make lemonade. I'm working and practicing as hard as I can, been writing, 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 and then writing again, writing again, recorded um, a whole bunch of songs. And so I think just trying to stay buoyant during this time with challenging myself to, um, to, to get more better, just, just, just work on it, just work on it. And, and, uh, but yeah, the, the psychological part of it is something that, uh, that I really miss the outlet of, of playing the outlet of, um, you know, whatever problems for me personally, I'm dealing with a lot of times I can play them out by singing and playing at a gig and not having had that. Plus, as you, as you mentioned, so eloquently world war three and, uh, Jesus is coming and, you know, all of the, everything that's happening right now, to not have that outlet and just to sort of play into your phone and put something online and have one say, have people come back and say, you know, you suck. You know, it's just sort of like, Oh, great. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, there's only so many trolls you want to deal with in a day. So it's, I think it's really trying to stay again, to use that term buoyant, trying to stay buoyant in this time and, and to challenge myself to, uh, to dig deeper and be better than it was yesterday. I can dig that. I can dig all of that. You know, we, we were lucky. We've actually managed to go out and do, um, for the first time since March, early March of 2020, uh, we went out and did like three gigs in a row, you know, staying in hotels even, you know? Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and so, and, and it was, and it was a lot of fun. People came out. It was all good. Uh, Cause prior to that, what I was, I, you know, I've talked about this in a lot of these chats that I do with folks is that I, I was very lucky in the fact that I was able to, I was already kind of positioned to trans, uh, to, to go into this kind of online world when, when COVID hit, it just kind of forced the hand. And so, you know, I, I had like four live stream, four to five live streams a week that I would do that were sanctioned by various individuals. So that was all well and good. And then I realized I just really love playing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whether I'm sitting in the house sitting by myself. I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, I'd rather play guitar than talk to people. <laughs> it's just, Hey, you're not alone in that. Right. And, uh, and that's not, uh, you know, that's just kind of one of our, you know, our character. I don't know if it's a defect or it's just, it's just part of the personality, but I was of the mindset. I was like, look, if I can go downstairs in my, in this little room and turn on some cameras and perform and, you know, reach out to this group of individuals that has been very, very uh, supportive uh, to go online. You know, I, I don't really miss hotels and I don't miss, you know, dealing with, you know, dodgy deals at clubs and pestilential food and so on and so forth. But, but then I went out and I played a gig and I was like, oh, that's right. This happens. You know what I mean? And even though you're getting that feedback, you know, on the you know, the ancillary screen here where I'm seeing comments from the various different places that we're streaming to, which is all well and good. But that congregational thing that happens when you're in front of people with the band, the crowd, you know, what the magic dust, whatever you want to say, you can't replace that on the inner Google. On the inner Google. No, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think there's, there's something about um, that live setting where there's an urgency in that moment. There's a, um, it's a bit of walking a tightrope in a way. You're, you're you're really in the you know in the moment, and um, and I think as well the exchange of energy. God willing, there's an audience at the at the gig, but that that sort of you know the uh, the immediate exchange, and and I think that's something because it is a two way street, right? It's not like just playing at people. There's like a a give and receive, which I think is such an important part of of music and imp improvisation and and right. being truly human in the moment, right? And so when you when you share that moment with with a, with people who are at the gig or or with your bandmates, there's a there's an energy, there's something palpable about that 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 certainly is different than uh, being on your own. And I, I you know I agree and and um, yeah I am so, I'm really itching to to get out and play. So it's, I, I'm happy to hear that 
I mean, I did see on certainly online some of the, some of the clips. Um, but when you're playing also at home, I mean, you're tearing it up. Sometimes I'm seeing that uh, you have like a, a, a like a group with obviously right. like your son. Your yep. son plays. Yeah, ridiculous. Obviously, that the apple does not fall anywhere away from the tree, right? So it's you guys are absolutely brilliant. And so, um, I mean, that it's still like the power of what what you've been sharing online on your own or or with with the. Uh, other musicians with you. I mean, it still translates. That's my experience in seeing, in seeing you playing. Um, and, and also we, we, sh- we sort of, I guess you could say we're schoolmates in a way that we're both at work with, with uh, Mark DeLorenzo at together. Right. Exactly. Um, who, who has been somebody who's really, you know, thrown a lifeline out, I think to a lot of musicians, my, myself included during this time. Right. And, and, you know, sort of created this platform. And, and that's something that I think has, been the closest to actually being in a live setting where you're sweating and your ears are buzzing and the, you know, that, that exchange of energy. And so guys like, like Mark and, and, and there are other people out there working with artists. Um, but that's such a, such a gift. It's been a, a truly a, a, a bright light during a, a really unfathomable time. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned Mark, just a, just a fantastic dude and, and uh, so easy to work with. There's no BS. It's a great platform. Uh, just something that was really kind of, you know, again, unforeseen as the pestilence took hold. And all of a sudden, hey, there's this cool, this cool situation where, you know, every other week or so you can go online and reach a whole bunch of different people. So, yeah, that's been fantastic. I, yeah. And, and as I totally agree with you, what a wonderful person, like just absolutely, like the, maybe the coolest guy ever in the music industry to work right. with. Like, like what? Like, okay, where's the, like, where's the trickery here? Oh, there right. is none. Wow. There, 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 there's no whiff of fuckery. <laughs> right. Totally. And, and so I'm grateful for that too. Right. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's like a refreshing and, and, um, yeah. So, so certainly thankful for that, uh, those opportunities and also just the inspiration that that has brought. And it, Again, it's been a lifeline. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about um, Canada, if we could. Um, you, you know, there have been, you know, um, you're about, I think you're like 10 years younger than I am. I was born in 66. Yeah. Right. So um, it, there, there just seems to be, uh, you know, frightening guitar players from Canada. I always kind of chalk it up to not dissimilar from the kind of neck of the wood that I'm in. Is that you know? Winter comes. What the hell else are you going to do other than practice? <laughs> I totally agree. That's that's it. I always say the same thing when people are like, "Wow, Rick Emmett's from up there. Wow, Lenny, Bro-. like all these players." It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's because of the long winters, and you know, I, I completely agree with that. And so you, so you were born in Wales, but you don't you don't remember anything from Wales. You're, you're pretty much a Canadian, right? Am I right? Well, yeah. So so I was born in Wales. My my parents, you know, were. British UK family and they, they immigrated to Canada. Um, and then, uh, my wife and I moved to Los Angeles. And so I'm an American citizen now and we've been living here. Um, so I'm thankful to have three passports available. Should, uh, should you need them? Should world war three get completely out of hand? I don't right. know, where, you know, but I'm grateful to have the, those opportunities. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I don't blame you for, uh, enjoying that particular situation of having th- three options. Well, I will tell you, Greg, that uh, I know that we actually shared a common thread with some, some personal grief over the last week or two and, and a few weeks. And um, so my, certainly all the best to you and your family. And uh, my wife and I were in Toronto um, just over the last two weeks. We got home the day before yesterday and uh, it's fucking cold. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was a heartbreaking time there um, dealing with, you know, some very sad uh, family dynamics and, um, but they had this trucker business going on and uh, these protests and people shouting for their freedom and waving Trump flags. And I'm like, wait a minute, we're in Canada, right? Like, right. So, you know, that was distressing because the, the city and, you know, to each their own people have their beliefs and things. It's, I'm not here to sort of talk about that, but it was stressful. We were right in the heart of the city and the whole area was closed off. And it just felt like uh, felt like different times up there than than when we lived there, for sure. Ah, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah. It was a different mood, a different energy, a lot of edge, a lot of angry people, and uh, kind of felt like uh, California or Los Angeles at rush hour, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So when you're up in Toronto, you know, when you were a youngin', um, describe how you hooked up with Jeff Healy and how that all kind of transpired. 
Yeah, thanks for asking. And it's interesting we're talking today. Today is the 14th anniversary of Jeff's transition to the next world. He passed oh. away. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's uh, thanks for asking about him today, especially. And uh, Jeff was like one of my favorite guitar players before I even knew, learned, before I even picked up a guitar. You know, he would, my parents played all this great music in the house, particularly blues players, um, blues and rock players. And, um, Jeff was one of the ones that was highly revered. Um, and so when I started going out and playing in the clubs, um, 15, 16, and kind of hanging around, um, Jeff would, when he was in town, cause he was touring at the time a lot. And, um, he would sometimes pop into a club here and there. Uh, a dear friend of mine who I met from playing on the scene uh, was a guy named Corey Myluck. He's just one of the most beautiful people you could ever meet. He's a close, dear friend for life. And um, he was sort of managing Jeff when Jeff was first breaking onto the scene. So Corey introduced him to people like Albert Collins and Stevie Ray Vaughan and, you know, when they came through town. And, and so, so Corey would get right in there. And um, so Corey introduced himself to me when I was getting started. And, and eventually he uh, mentioned something to Jeff. He's like, I met this guy and he really admires you and you got to check him out. And so Jeff came out to a gig and next thing I knew I was jamming with Jeff and he was playing bass and I was really on the spot. And I didn't know that it was so much of an audition other than I was just, I was terrified because of, you know, I'm playing with this genius player and he was so warm and we went outside and he just said, I want you to join my band. What do you think? And we'll, we'll teach you how to play on larger stages and kind of groom you. And ultimately, get you ready to go out on your own. How does that sound? And so after I fainted and woke up again, I said, uh, I'm in. And um, at the time I had been recording, I had signed a, a deal within, in Canada with, uh, with a label and had been recording and working on that. But the opportunity to go out and, and you know, apprentice or men, Jeff becoming a mentor in that way, was, it was a no-brainer. It was like, yeah, fuck all that. I'm, I need to stand near Jeff. And it was like a, it was like a dream. And I worked with him for four years and every night he played, he never played the same way. He had the most unbelievable sense of humor in his playing much, much like yourself. That was, it was just an, inc just incredible. The things that he could play on the drop of a, just, he didn't think about it. It came through him and it was, uh, it was just the most amazing. I, I just wanted to be a sponge. I was a guest on his stage, a guest in his house. The people at the gigs were there to see him. They didn't give a shit about who's this other guitar player. You know, it was it was it was a tough call because he would like he would play something that would completely decimate the gig. Right. It would be like, you know, at the time he was playing really like good. You know, we we're doing House of Blues, sometimes festivals or, you know, he's doing good, good rooms. And um, the room would be laughing after he had just taken a, a solo or something. And he just kind of like point over at me and say, OK, now it's your turn. And it's like. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Hi, you know, like, I mean, what do you, what do you play? And so he really stretched me and really gave me an opportunity to, to develop some confidence. And, and he's just a great guy on stage and off stage. I love him. And, and I, and I miss him. Yeah. He definitely was transcendent when he, when he was in the moment doing his thing, it was, it was a mind blowing thing. It was, it was, it was unlike anything else. I've, you know, he's such a unique he was channeling something from above for sure. Yeah, yeah. So how about, did you ever have any dealings with Mel Brown up there in Canada while you were? I love that you just mentioned Mel Brown. Yes, indeed. And because not, every, not everyone talks about Mel Brown. I actually got to hang with Mel Brown a little bit. And I mean, the people that know, no, you know, but I mean, are you fucking kidding me, Mel Brown? I mean, it's like, it's fucking Mel Brown. And, and the, the thing that was interesting when I was first doing some recordings in town, my manager was kind of hit me to Mel Brown and told me a little bit about his story. And he was living up there. Um, and I believe his wife's name at the time or his partner's name, uh, was angel. And, uh, Mel came to the studio to do some playing and I would go out and see him play. And, uh, every time he played, I was like, man, I, I'm not, I'm not want to play around this guy. This is crazy. How good he like, what the hell's going on? And then he would sit down and play organ. And it was like, what the fuck is going on here? I mean, he was so good. He was so beautiful and so chill and funky and just his dexterity and the cleanliness of the things that he would, would play was like his picking was like, I mean, right. are you kidding me? So yes, Mel Brown, I mean, God rest his soul too. What? Yeah. What that chicken, that chicken fat record was, uh, was awesome. It's, 
right, right. It's just glorious. And then I said, you know, of course, I, and I didn't get, I didn't get into hip to him until maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. But well, then I did, I was like, what, who is this guy? And then of course I always try to figure out where did he come from? Where did he go? You know, and then knowing that he did that house gig at Antone's and then that owner of that club up in Canada kind of made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And he ended up going up there and just kind of holding court and being a mentor to a bunch of people up there. And there's also a really cool black and white thing of just him doing uh, a blues, uh, black and white video on YouTube of him doing like just a 12 bar blues and more of a swing thing in B flat. He's playing that Birdland. And just, you know, I just love the sound of Birdlands. They just sound, there's a thing about them. They, you know, they, even though it's, it's kind of like a, a strat with huge balls. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'm the clean neck pickup. You know what I mean? <laughs> Oh man! And, I keep uh, hurting, Greg. This is funny. <laughs> oh, gosh. this is great. This is great. Wow! Uh, yeah, I'm down. <laughs> so, do yeah. you go up there and gig much anymore, or, or, or just once a year? Or how does? I mean, obviously pre or post or pre COVID, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I was going up there a whole bunch. Um, I was working with with Warner Music Canada um, up until the the pandemic started, and so so we had kind of started to focus. Over the last six years or so, a lot more time. I put out three records with them, and we'd kind of focused uh, more of the energy on on developing the the Canadian market. But there's there's limited gigs, right? Like it's a huge country with a tenth of the population of of uh, the U.S., right? So it's um, yeah. So there's only so many times you can go up and play, and only so you know. So that was kind of what we ran into, and. Um, but yeah, I mean, always grateful to have the opportunity to perform in, in Canada. I mean, Ottawa is such a fun city to play in, and, and Toronto is just bonkers. I mean, all the way across, it's a lot of fun. So certainly thankful for the opportunities and, and hopeful that as the dust is settling, God willing, from from at least from the cron, if hopefully it's settling. We don't know what's yet to come, but hopefully we're hopefully we're on the other side, I'm God willing, um, that there will be an opportunity to return and but maybe more in spring, summer, and autumn. The winter is it's, 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 it's pretty harsh. We were just dealing with it for two weeks, and we're soft now because we're out here on the West Coast. So, right. You know. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, winter is, um, you know, I, I, I made the mistake this past weekend of, you know, my wife's from Minnesota, so she's she's no stranger to the uh, the pestilence of winter. And uh, she's like, we should do something today. We're you not know, staying in the house. Let's, let's go cross-country skiing. And I'm like, last time I country skied was, you know, the Carter administration, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and then my, my wife was a, um, you know, she was all state, you know, cross country skier in high school. So she's like, let's do it. And we took my youngest who's a senior in high school and we went out and I get this, these things on and I'm just, I don't remember how to do any of this shit. And I start moving. I'm like, oh, 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 you know, I'm just like, oh, for God's sake. And then I end up falling of course. And, and you know, let me just tell you a little story. If you fall over 50, it's never good. It's oh, just no. never good. So <laughs> this whole side of my body, it's like I, I it was like I fell down and I heard something just go click. And I was like, oh, no, no. no. Oh, no. Oh, no. So, I mean, luckily, I, you know, I can sneeze and it doesn't kill me. But, you know, like when I'm rolling over at night, it's like, ah. Oh, so, shit. Yeah. And the only time this has happened to me before was about five, six years ago. I was walking down. The, it was so funny. My wife and I were... um we were going out to dinner to meet some people and there was this ice storm and it was like rush hour kind of dinner hour on a, on a Friday night. And I'm watching all these people park their cars and people are getting out of their cars and they're like falling on their ass. And I'm like, look at these idiots. They don't know how to walk on the ice. <laughs> right, and, right. And I, and I parked the car and we get out and we're walking down the, the, the sidewalk and she slips and then I slip because she's like, aren't you going to hold my hand? I'm like, of course, honey. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Boom. And I, oh. all I just remember just falling on my side and and just, you know, and being about this much in water. Like, oh, oh. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, so I bruised ribs then. So this is kind of I don't know. I must be susceptible to the side body slam. So, <laughs> so now people know my Achilles heel. So if you ever want to fight me, just make me fall on my side and I'm going to click some shit and I won't be able to move. <laughs> oh, no, I don't mean to laugh, dude, but you're killing me here. This is very funny. It's because it's, it's never funny when you fall in the snow, right? Like there's always, I think there's one big fall every, every, you know, icy winter. And the, the, the real, the real hidden devil is the is the fresh snow on the ice 
where you don't know there's the ice underneath, but it looks, oh, it's just a little snow. Boom, you're down. And it's, yeah, when you're not ready for it, it's, it's, it could take you out. Yeah. It is terrifying. Well, Ugh. we're past it. We're good. Well, I, I hope, I hope that you're, uh, that your torso, your body is is recovering, and uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So, so they say, right? So they say. But, <laughs> I'm ready yeah. to go out cross country skiing again this weekend. <laughs> let's go! Oh, oh Lord, have mercy. Well, let's talk a little bit about your sound and how you've you've you know you've got that just quintessential Strat sound. Now, are you a, are you a super reverb guy? Is that your thing, or do you switch it up? What what is kind of your uh, do you mess around with a bunch of different stuff or did you just find your thing early on and say, no, this is what I do? Thanks for asking, Greg. So um, when I was first getting started, um, you know, as always, of course, the, the players that I think have inspired both of us, although maybe some different players, of course, but uh, like Albert Collins and, and Freddie King and Stevie Ray and, and Eric Clapton. I mean, Jimi Hendrix, these guys have, I mean, I, without sounding uh, too trite. I mean, that's the tone, right? That's the, they each have a unique thing. And so I was always very aware of that sound that kind of could stop traffic. Right. So in each one of them have that, that thing, all them, all of my favorite players, Robert Cray, you know, all, and so it was always very important to me to try to find a, a real, a real sound like that. Jeff Healy again, of course. Um, and so it's something I always paid attention to. And then I shared a rehearsal room when I was kind of getting into the scene a bit with uh, someone who's still a, a close friend, um, Ken Baluk, who started a company called Ox Fuzz. He was making these fuzzes for a while, but he has a super heavy band called Sons of Otis, like, like super heavy. Um, and um, so we would share that room and he would always be kind of like poking me. He had like, you know, he's a little older than me, not like way older, maybe 10 years difference. I don't know, but he would be like, man, we got to get the tones together. You got to get the tones. Okay. You need the fuzz. And so he would always kind of like give me a poke to like, um, yeah, that pedal's cool, man. Let's try the, the, this vintage one. So he really, he sort of, I don't want to say like he coached me, but he definitely influenced me to, to reach for more tones. And when I started playing with Jeff, like we would go out and play shows and maybe I had like a, a boutique amp or something. I won't mention any names. So I don't want to offend anyone. But I thought, okay, this this will do it. So I got to the gig, and Jeff just had like a hundred watt Marshall head and a four twelve, and it, the the boutique amp I had just disappeared, like you couldn't hear it. And so I started seeing, like, okay, it sounds beautiful in a room, or it sounds great with a microphone on it in a recording setting, but it's not. It doesn't have the the iron. It doesn't have the 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 you know the 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 balls to to basically to to, to keep up in this type of situation. And so. I started experimenting a lot and eventually, you know, going back to kind of like the super reverbs, uh, old Fender, old Marshall, um, even some old box stuff, um, which isn't necessarily known for high headroom, but there's something about them that they really throw, they really, you know, and so that was something that was important to me. And then, um, I reached out to Cesar Diaz cause he was the, the amp doctor to everyone. Um, particularly learning about Stevie Ray Vaughan, but Neil Young and, and, and uh, Eric Clapton and George Harris and many more. And he was the just the most unbelievable gentleman. And uh, he did up an amp for me and it was like the light switch went off. It was like, Oh shit, this is a, this is a whole other universe. And eventually I got to know Caesar a little bit and I spent some time at his house. He put me up for a couple of days and worked on a bunch of amps. And so I really feel like I, I really learned firsthand from him about, you know, what, what makes something kind of, you know, again, looking for a deeper, better tone and always, I mean, I'm always working on it, but, um, so having that opportunity to spend time with him was life-changing in a lot of ways. And then, um, meeting, a, a, a amplifier designer in Sweden, whose name is Tommy Cougar, who is, um, still alive. And he is just, he's amazing. He just infuses soul into his work and he's not trying to recreate a, anybody else's amp. He's just sort of this, he has a beautiful energy he puts into his creations and I'm thankful he shared them with me. And, uh, also very thankful to spend some time with Alexander Dumble and got to kind of play with some of his amps at his place when he was still with us. And so I think again, like listening and learning and watching players and, and, and just trying to, again, soak up as much as I can from everybody that, that I've watched and learned. And yeah. And, and I mean, especially listen to a lot of Albert Collins and Stevie Ray Vaughan bootlegs. I think those two guys, their tone for me is, is the, is my favorite. Right. 
Now, now are you a um, set the amp cleanish with just a little bit of bite and then use a pedal from there? Or do you just turn the amp up and use the volume control? Or is it sometimes one, sometimes the other? Yeah, both are true. I think really, you know, so if it's like, you know, sometimes you go in and it's like, uh, there's a twin reverb, that's it. So you don't have a lot of choice. You just set it as, as much as you can, or you turn it backwards or whatever. And, and yeah, so I try to keep the amp with as much sort of, you know, that, that happy, uh, that happy headroom that you get from, from say an old Fender or, or an old Marshall and maybe with a little hair on it, maybe the five o'clock shadow or something. And right. then, and then run whatever, pedal the pedal du jour is exactly yeah yeah how about yourself pedals du jour how how about yourself what's your preference when when you're setting up i mean because your your tone is it's the real deal it's incredible and it's yours thank you and so Um, what do you what's your preference you know for years i would um i would just use a super reverb and pedals in front of it super reverb or a vibralux and then in the studio it would it would fluctuate you know a lot of times you just crank an amp and and um and see what happens. But for, for live performance, you know, a buddy of mine that I went to college with uh, named Tim Yarning uh, made me an overdrive pedal and a clean boost. Uh, at first, <laughs> at first the overdrive pedal that he did for me was called the diabolical gristled tone manipulator. <laughs> and, and yes. Then, <laughs> yes. And yes. then he had this clean boost as well. And at one point I said, if you could put the clean boost with the DGTM, that would be awesome because then I would have everything in one fell swoop. So that we called the Gristle King, and that's been my main overdrive. If I'm if I'm going someplace and I don't know what amp I'm using, I'll just bring that. You know, and a lot of times I would just bring three pedals. I'd bring the Gristle King, I'd bring a Boss DD3 because I would just bend over and change. I don't like to use delay all the time, but whatever delays I need, that little thing I bought in 1986 still brings it. You know, and. And then I have a um, that uh, Neo Instruments ventilator that I like to use for uh, to the Leslie sound, and and that was kind of my throw and go rig for a long time. And then I, but I wasn't, I wasn't opposed to doing amps with um, with overdrive on board if it was right. Because years ago I got lucky and I had a, uh, I had a Jim Kelly amp. You ever play one mm. one of those amps? I, you know, I actually. I have played one, but it's one of the newer ones. I have not played the the old ones, but I'm aware of the of the brilliance. Well, what I, what I loved about it was it was a it was a single twelve combo, and it was basically like two deluxes in one amp. And the one deluxe you set for your clean sound, and the other deluxe there was a separate attenuator for it, so you could dime it, and then you know put it in, so you could do a channel switching thing that was basically. A deluxe and a deluxe that was dimed but attenuated, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it was a, uh, they had JBLs, they had a JBL uh, E112 in there. So it, it was loud. And, but man, it sounded so good. So that was kind of like my first foray into like a, a, a channel switching amp. And then I blew the amp up at one point in time and it was never the same since. So then I started using, uh, tweed basements and I would use a tube basement with a tube screamer. And then I'd use, uh, I was like, oh, I should super reverb because I want reverb. And it was super reverbs with, a, and then, and then at one point I started using these little, um, Fender pro junior amps. Cause I love to record with them. It's the little one with the, just the volume and the tone on it. Yeah. They're like uh, 15 Watts. Right. And I started using two of those. Next thing you know, I'm using four of them, which seems <laughs> stupid, but they sounded so good. And I was really into the idea of, you just turn them up and use the volume control on your guitar, and it just seems so organic and groovy, right? And then at some point, some guy said to me, he's like, well, if you like that thing, there's a Mesa Boogie amp you might like. Because I never really was a big boogie guy for whatever reason. But this amp was called the Maverick, and it was basically four, EL30, four EL84s. And it sounded like the clean channel was warm and did that kind of you know EL34s and 84s. They do that warmer clean thing where they don't fart out on the low end and they don't kind of bristle on the high end so i like that for the clean sound and the lead sound it sound when that amp was overdriven it sounded like those pro juniors dime so i kind of dug that uh and then i'll never forget i got a call from one of the fender guys because i was doing a lot of fender stuff at that point in time and there's like oh people have been going out to see your band and they've been seeing a uh, mace boogie on stage and that might greatly hinder your ascendance in uh, kind of our you know, Fender community. If they would. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So then yeah. it was recommended to me that I would use a, um, this deluxe, um, the Vibrolux custom Vibrolux amp. And that has been one of my favorite amps ever since. So I've been using that quite a bit. And a lot of times I'll just dime it and throw it against the wall and just use the volume control of the amp or I'll run it you know, like on three and a half ish and then use pedals. 
Um, but then I got hooked up with caulk amplifiers and they kind of made me, I really liked their two channel amps cause that worked for me. Uh, and I kind of gave them a recipe and they really knocked it out of the park. So I've been prior to COVID, I would bring my guitar, a chord, that amp, and it's got, you know, clean sound. There's a way to make the clean sound a little dirty overdrive channel overdrive a little more dirty. It's got a harmonic vibrato on board. So it's like a univibe on board. Nice. And really and really good reverb. Um, so that was my main thing. And then during COVID, I've been messing around with pedals again. So, you know, you know how it is. It just never ends. It never ends. It's always a work in progress, right? There's always something new to learn and something, you know, a way to make it better than it was yesterday, right? So it's- Exactly. So there's no, as you well know, it's like there's no right answer other than what is ever inspiring you in the moment is what's necessary. That's exactly it. I feel that. Yeah, it's actually really cool to hear. I, I don't know if I knew about the four the four amp setup. That's really cool. That's very interesting. It was like, well, they weren't very roadworthy. That was because they weren't, you know, it was supposed to be like a bedroom amp, you know, and in the way that the, the EL34s were kind of hanging, or EL84, sorry, the way they were kind of a set in the back wasn't real sturdy and i used to, i remember i was a tour with this buddy of mine willie porter at the time was a great acoustic singer songwriter guy and i and i was uh, touring with him for a bit and i would i went to target and i got these rubber barrel you know these bins and yeah. i would put put the amp in these instead of having road cases i'd put these little amps in these rubber bins and it worked that's awesome. But it, but it just goes one of those things where it's just like, man, hauling around four of these amps and then MacGyvering them. And then at that time, my favorite Leslie simulator was that, uh, do you remember those Korg G4s at all? Yeah, it, it yes. Like, the brown, uh, a brown thing with like four buttons on it. It sounded great. And that's how I would split them. So I would do, I'd run two and two in stereo and have a Y cable off the each side to, to get them going. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that is. I was going to ask you, how did you split the four? So that's that's interesting. Uh, and then, of course, you know, something else happens and then, oh, I'm back to the Super Reverb or you travel someplace. And I remember I did a gig with Willie down at the House of Blues in Chicago and there were um, their backline was provided by um, oh, the Chicago and Victoria. Remember Victoria? Amps yeah, Chicago? Yeah. yeah. And they had a tweed twin. On the back line. And, and and they were all in this kind of back area where the amps were kind of stacked on top of each other. And and I grabbed this tweed twin. I was like, no one even knows this thing is here. So I used it on the gig <clears throat> and I really liked it. You know, because so many people talk about tweed twins like they're the holy grail of all time. From Danny Gatton to Keith Richards to, you know, Joe Bonamassa, all those guys, they swear by the tweed twin. And so I remember I called up, I think it's Mark Bear, isn't it? Mark from, from Victoria. It's like, hey, I think that's his name. And I, I called him up and I said, hey, or I emailed him or whatever we did back then, smoke signals. And <laughs> <laughs> and I said, hey, uh, you know, no one's doing anything with that amp. But, you know, I don't think they even used it. It was in this weird place. Could I buy that amp from you? And so he made me a, a deal I couldn't, you know, an offer I couldn't understand. And so um, he, he got the hold of the amp and kind of refurbished it. And I bought it. And it was it was great. Uh, but yeah, it's just one of those things where you go into a different situation and something might be available to you and then it gets, com- gets you completely going on yet another side street of gear procurement. I, I agree. No, I, lo- I love that. I agree with you hundred percent. Like sometimes, yeah, it's like, you know, you fly in or whatever and it's just rental gear and it's totally different than what you requested. And it's like, I don't know how it's going to work, but by the end of the gig, it's like, you know what? I need to get one of those, like right. whatever it is. It's like, <laughs> that's pretty cool. So it's, it's about, yeah, sometimes being adaptable and, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, ultimately, yeah, trying to get something at least usable out of it and maybe learning something in the process. But uh, yeah, but that's, that's awesome. Um, you know, those Victoria amps, I remember playing a 410 basement once and it sounded like a piano. It sounded huge. It sounded amazing. So I have a lot of, certainly a lot of respect for Victoria. Yeah, they're nice amps. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch signature Fluence Gristle Tone pickup set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, Bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So let's talk about that that old Strat of yours. What's the story with that that beast? Well, I'm I'm thanks for asking. I'm really grateful to to own um, 
I have I own two 1963 Stratocasters, which I'm really thankful to uh, to own. Um, one of them I've had for uh, longer than the other, but both for quite a long time now. Um, one that I named Mother, and um, and that's just like sort of an Olympic white Strat that uh, I saved up for while I was working with with Jeff Healy, and and uh, you know we were touring a lot, and so I just saved up and saved up, and at the time. Um, this is around the turn of the century. Uh, right. they, they were, they were expensive, but they weren't like they as expensive as they are now. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I was really thankful to get it. I, I found it through a friend of mine, Bob Blazewski, and he called someone who knew about a guitar and they shipped it out and it was like love at first sight. And then the second guitar, which is a sunburst, uh, it was more of a blackburst, actually a lot of black and a very small ring of sunburst on it. Um, had come across my path years ago and I didn't have the money to buy it at the time. And somehow about 10 years ago, it, it came up. A friend of mine called me and said, my friend, Mike Lant, he just goes, Hey man, I found this guitar and it kind of, for some reason I thought of you, are you looking? I said, no, man, no. And he <laughs> sent me a, and he sent me a picture and it was the same fucking guitar and it had come round circle, you know, from different, a couple different owners. I'm like, whatever I have to do to get that guitar. And so I sold a bunch of things. And so those are the two guitars and I cherish them. And, um, yeah, they're, they're, um, very inspiring to play and I'm really thankful to have them. Yeah. Now, are you, um, are you constantly procuring other things just for the fun of it? Or are you pretty disciplined that way? You know, I'm pretty disciplined, um, by, uh, just because I have to be disciplined, <laughs> especially during COVID, right? It's not right, a lot right, of gigs right. right now. So, I'm keeping it, uh, keeping it real, I guess, in some ways, but, uh, you know, I know what I, I, you know, I know what I like when I hear it and when I feel it, when it's that combination of those two things. And, and, uh, so it's not just about like collecting it because it's that item. It has to be the one that, that really like the, you turn it on, the angels come out. It's like, Oh, so if it's, you know, I, I feel that way with certain fuzz face pedals or, or, um, old wah-wahs and things like that. Um, so it's not just anyone will do, it has to be, has to have the thing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty picky, like very, very, very picky and have sold some, um, you know, sold some pieces that uh, instruments and, and, you know, amps and pedals that I've regretted selling. But at the time I was, you know, maybe going as we all, we've all been through that. But, um, so I don't have tons of gear. I have a few pieces of things that I, that I really love. And I, you know, I just work them, work them as hard as I can. Yeah. So are there things that you do to your strats to optimize the, the five-way toggle switch so that they all have a thing? Or do you, you know, do you gravitate to certain toggle switch positions or, or do you like to mess around with all the above? Cause it's really a thing with strat people. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like sometimes I never use the middle position or people, you know what I mean? If people are like, I'm always either on the neck or the four position. There's just such a weirdness, not weirdness, but just, all kinds of different, you know, kind of strat outlooks. So what, what is yours per se? You know what? I, I'm an equal opportunity guy with all of them. Um, you know, sometimes you're in a Mark Knopfler headspace or, or a Hubert Sumlin headspace, you know, that, that, I love that position Or sometimes, you know, buddy guy vibe, or, or maybe you're trying to get a little Albert Collins or, or all the players, Stevie Ray influence. So I think that's the thing I like about the, the Fender guitars, particularly I gravita- gravitated to strats because, most of my favorite players were playing Stratocasters. So, um, but they're tough, right? Like a Telecaster, as you well know, like there's, they're really, really strong and, and Strats too, but like they're, they're really strong guitars and, and they can kind of, they can take it. They can take being on the road. They can, unfortunately, when they fall over, they, you know, you're just not, you're, you're worried, but not quite as worried as with maybe a, a, another brand of guitar. And so, I mean, I do have a, a, a mid sixties Gibson SG with a single P90. That is one of my favorite guitars. You know, it's just, it's just, yeah, but it's, but it's delicate. You know, it's that thing where you can kind of bend the neck and chin, right. but I'm always a little nervous. Like if you're not paying attention, do you bend it too much and break it? You know that. So, so I, I feel a little bit more, um, I'm not always the lightest touch. So I think, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, can, I like to play with a light touch as well, but sometimes when you get lost in the music, I'm not really thinking about it. And as you know, sometimes you look down and you're bleeding. So it's sort of like, right. okay. Um, so, <laughs> so the strats just always kind of, um, they're, and they're, sometimes they're, they challenge you, you know, I mean, all the guitars are a challenge to play, of course, but uh, yeah, just so, so all the positions 
you know, for me, I like to use them perhaps with like a fuzz face. The bridge position is, is a lot of fun, especially when you're kind of dimed out. Um, but then the same thing is true for that kind of neck and middle position. If you're running a fuzz face, you want that clean glittery sound. So I try to, I try to use them all. Right, right, right. Excellent. So I was going to ask you because there, uh, (laughs) there has been, I like to call it Woodgate. There's been controversy online with uh, these various people that are posting, you know, YouTube videos dispelling the significance of tone woods. And, uh, and I just find it, I find it comical myself, but you know, cause I mean, if, if for people who have played guitars over decades, you know, that when you grab an alder bodied strat with a rosewood fingerboard, there's certain characteristics that are going to happen. And, and sometimes it's more of a feel thing than a sound, you know, sure. As opposed to an ash body with a maple uh, uh, neck and fingerboard and so on and so forth. So for you as, as a stratchman, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, cause I've always been, it's interesting because I, I played strats for years. Oh yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, at one point when I, when I first started, you know, I didn't know shit about wood, you know, I didn't, you know, I was like, oh, well this, this will do. But I had a, um, I had a, uh, 63 reissue in the late eighties, early nineties Fender did kind of a, their first Mary Kay reissues where okay. they had, um, a 57 reissue with the maple board. And then they had a 63 reissue, uh, with the, uh, Rosewood board, but I think it was still an ash body. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I used that with that Jim Kelly and man, it was, it was magical. Right. <clears throat> but then as years went on, I was like, I play my buddy's 56 strat, you know, and he'd let me use it on gigs. I'm like, I just, I just want this, you know, I, li- <laughs> I, I like that V neck and it sounds, as there, but I, I don't think I was really cognizant of the difference um, of the sounds until later when I was really able to kind of A, B and you could really, and, and I always use the example of like, um, like when you're watching that uh, Stevie Ray at the live at the Elma combo, when he breaks the string towards the end and he grabs the candy apple red strat with the maple board, it's way brighter than the other guitars. Right, right. And and that's the thing that I like to, you know, describe to people. And they're like, well, yeah, but the wood has nothing. That's just, it, you know. So what what is your thoughts on all of that malarkey? Yeah, I mean, and, and this is, I, I love chatting about this with you. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I think, I think beauty's in the eye of the beholder a lot of times. And, and uh, if it, you know, I, I don't, for me personally, I'm not too hung up on, you know, necessarily if it's, ash or alder or, or pine for that matter, whatever it is. It's like, if, if when you play it, if it's that thing, like for me, when, when I play it, I sit down and, um, if it has, if it has the thing where it's like sort of vibrating, I feel it in my body and I can't stop playing it. I don't really care what kind of wood it is. So I do have my preference. Yeah. Like a, like an early sixties strat or late, even fifties strats. I'm a huge fan of, it's just, it, you know, I'd, I'd love to own some fifties maple board strats. I mean, I, you know, and I, I welcome the opportunity. Um, but, uh, I, I think, I think for me, it's like, I try to let my ear be my guide. I know that neighborhood I want to go in. Exactly. And if, it, if it's like, okay. And if somebody told me later, like, that's, you know, that's ass wood, you know, whatever, right. like, you know, whatever, that's not even, you know, that's, that's put together with human feces or whatever. Right. I'd be like, Wow. Well, fecal poxy, fecal poxy. (laughs) Right. You know, like, okay, well, Hey, that, well, you fooled me because it sounds good. So I think I really try to, I try to do that, even though, you know, the marquee of the pre CBS or, or whatever it is, you know, it's, is, is alluring. Sometimes, I mean, we both played those guitars that were like, eh, it was okay. You know, sometimes it has to be the one. Exactly. I just played, I, you know, this last summer I ended up buying a, a, a 74 Strat and it was totally out of the blue. I saw it hanging up and of course I see the bigger headstock and I think of Big Jim and I'm thinking something about looking to, looking down and seeing that big headstock makes oh, me yeah. think of things of the mighty Jimbo. So I, I, grabbed it, I grabbed it off the wall and it weighed like nothing. I'm like, wait a minute, this is a 70 Strat. It's supposed to weigh a ton and it weighs like, you know, seven and a half maybe or seven nice. and a quarter. And I brought it down, had the three-way toggle switch, and I plugged it in, and it was magical. And I was like, I don't care if this is a 70 Strat or if it's got polyurethane as opposed to nitro or, as you said, if it's, you know, fecal wood or <laughs> or whatever the case may be. But, but to your point as well, it's like there are, like, general rules of thumb 
that we kind of know exist, but there's always exceptions and they're just kind of general rules. But, but to say that none of it is real is also as, as, uh, as kind of black and white thinking, you know what I mean? Totally. Totally. And, you know, a question actually popped in my mind as, as you were talking about this strat and, and, and you mentioned Big Jim. And, you know, I, I just, just I want to throw this question out to you and not to like get away from the, the you know, where we're going. I'm really enjoying the conversation about the tone wood and the, the, the point of view and, and kind of cork sniffing all the stuff. Right. But right. but which, you know, teach their own, of course. But, um, you know, when I <coughs> excuse me, when I hear you play or in, in different 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 areas. I mean, I've seen you play in so many, so many different settings, um, equally comfortable with a lot of different kinds of, um, for, for lack of a better term, vocabulary. So I could hear, I can hear something that would be like, wow, that's got like a real band, <clears throat> excuse me, banded gypsies type Hendrix power and, and some of the, the phrasing and, and some of the way you're playing, but then equally go into something that is perhaps Django inspired or perhaps, uh, you know, some kind of Travis picking and, you know, all these different things. And that's one of my favorite things about your, like your, it's seamless, like your ability to take different areas, but it's also Greg, right? It's all Greg, but to take these different influences that are quite far reaching and, you know, in, in your evolution as a musician, you know, what, who are, let's say like a couple of like, obviously Hendrix for everyone, but in some of the other genres of music, um, perhaps in some of the, the, the country playing that I hear your influences, um, some of the jazz playing, um, you know, who are the ones that, that are sort of the, you know, the, the high watermark for you that really changed your life? Oh, well, thank you. First of all, um, you know, it was, uh, as far as the different, to, to me, all the different, uh, styles and stuff, they're, they're all interrelated in one way or another. There's like some, there's a giant tree of influence and all these guys are on it, you know? And, um, and how I got into them, there was a lot of this kind of cross pollination. So I was, you know, a huge cream era Clapton fan. Well, really through, well, I'm a, a Clapton fan through all of the, his various different things. But as I always like to say, the guy that existed up until 1971 is different from the guy that was, that's been from then up to present. It's just different. You know, it's, it's different mentality. Uh, a different intention as a, as a guitar player to me anyway. And <laughs> oh, huge um, fan here too. So yeah. And, and there was just, there was this magic to it, you know? And um, so I was very much on that track, but I would always read up on like Hendrix. I think I did a report on Hendrix and I was in third grade and, and a neighbor, a neighbor who had an older brother had this biography of Hendrix. And I read that thing cover to cover several times and I would see, Names like, you know, Albert King, B.B. King, Hubert Sumlin, Muddy Waters, Hollow Wolf, all that kind of stuff. So I, I was always curious as to who these guys were. But, you know, it was a strange thing. I always gravitated to me to the the guys that I thought were the pinnacle in all those different genres. You know, I wm-hmm. wasn't really into, um, how do I put this, the, the genre per se. I was into that individual who was outstanding in that field that made me feel it a certain way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so for instance, I, I discovered uh, the country style playing through really two English guys. It was, I loved the way Mark Knopfler's guitar sound. I just loved the way that he would pop the strings and sound, the sound of a clean strat with, you know, I, that's first attracted me. Uh, when I heard Jeff Beck on that record uh, there and back, I think the second track he does the soul and he starts off chicken picking. And I was like, I, that, that, you know, and right around the same time Clapton came out with that just one night record and Albert Lee oh, was yeah. on. Oh yeah. And so then I discovered this Albert Lee and I had just like, you know, at that time, even in my fledgling, you know, world where I knew about the blue scale or maybe the major pentatonic scale a little bit, I was like, this guy, none of those scales are applicable. He's like playing jazz ish over these changes. Right. So that kind of set me on that whole that whole world. So I started reading, there was an article again in guitar player magazine and, and then Albert Lee starts listing, you know, James Burton and uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy, Jimmy Bryant and um, you know, all these. And then of course you'd hear about Chet Atkins and, and Jerry Reed. So I would kind of go to these different places and figure out who these pe- people were. I, I heard Ray Flack playing on a, um, on a Ricky Skaggs record that came out when I was in high school. And that was huge for me. And I realized, 
Ray Flack played such cool shit on a telly, but he, he played like on the neck pickup, which was really weird. And he used like a lab series amp. But I started reading into him and he was into Richie Blackmore. So he was he was like playing country with kind of a Richie Blackmore attitude. And so that's why I was. But then I discovered, you know, Roy Buchanan and I discovered Danny Gatton um, <laughs> and Danny Gatton. I heard about there was a buddy of mine who's uh, I played in a band with this guy. He's probably about 10, 15 years older than I was. And um, we were doing like all kind of roots rockabilly stuff um you know old dave edmonds tunes and nick Lowe and whatnot and this guy's brother was in town and the brother is named bill milkowski and he writes for downbeat yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrote, just got done um well he wrote the jaco pistorius book and i think he just wrote a book on michael brecker anyway so he was home for the holidays and he heard me playing in the basement he comes down he's like he's like man have you uh he goes the way you play have you, have you heard of danny gatton and i said well, I've heard the, I've seen his name in Guitar Player. But this is before he had you know, the major record deal or anything. Right, he was right. just kind of this legend guy that was from out east. And there was a in 1983, there was a Guitar Player magazine. It was like ten unknown rockabilly guys. So it's like Brian Setzer was on the cover, and then they had like ten other guys. Or it was like Sleepy Labeef, and then it was Danny Gatton. And I'm looking at this Danny Gatton with his hair slicked back, with a beer bottle on his telly, and he looked frightened. You know what I mean? It looked like someone like, I think this guy would probably punch you if you saw him. Right, right, right. And uh, so Bill Milkowski, when he got back home, he sent me a cassette of uh, the first two Danny Gatton records, which were Redneck Jazz and Unfinished Business. And, and that was huge to me. Um, you know, it was just, it was someone who was melding that jazz world, which I was into because I was going to school for music and for jazz. And even though I never really wanted to be, uh, you know, playing casuals, although I did plenty of that, but I, I you know, I didn't want to be a guy, you know, with, uh, I'd always say the ruffled tux on the Lido deck of the love boat playing girl yeah. from Ipanema. I had no yeah. desire to do that, but I did want to know how to play over changes and know how to communicate writing and reading music at a professional level. So uh, Danny spoke to me in that way. So that's kind of how I got into that whole style of playing. But, and then, you know, a buddy of mine at school, his older brother, actually it was his, his uncle, even though they were only a few years apart, you know, it was this, this buddy of mine and his uncle was at school at the same time. And, and he would play a, um, he was, he was there as a, be a music teacher, but he was playing in jazz band and he had this George Benson Ibanez. And, uh, my buddy Carl would say to his uncle, Uncle Rob, he'd say, "Hey, play some of that Merle Travis." So he'd, he'd go over to his um, he'd go over to his uh, uh, guitar case and he'd open up the little, you know, middle fuzzy section, middle middle fuzzy section, and he'd grab oh, like out the, <laughs> he, he would grab out the uh, Sucrets container and he would get out a thumb pick and he'd start doing the Merle Travis stuff. And I was like, it just looked like an alien language to me because yeah. you know I I didn't grow up with people that were into i was the youngest of seven kids they were oh, okay. all they were all boomers they were all into rock and roll you know no one around me was into country music so you know all of a sudden uncle rob's doing this stuff with the thumb pick i was like at some point i gotta learn that shit so to me it was all you know kind of a confluence of all these different things that i thought i gotta learn how to do these various different things to feed into whatever i'm trying to do on my own and um and and I never was really good about uh, like doing things verbatim. You know what I mean? It's like I just wanted to speak in the language of people. Totally. I, and and so I would kind of you know uh, figure out the things that I thought were the most intrinsic parts of that style, or the, the things that I was the most interested in pulling from that style to add to my own thing. But that's why when people say, "Hey, play this or play that by this person," I'll do my version of it because I've never figured it out. Right. from beginning to end you know what i mean absolutely so, so absolutely. that's kind of how that all came together plus my dad scared the shit out of me my dad was a you know my dad was a lawyer and all my siblings were you know professionals and it was expected that you know you go to college you get your degree you get a professional job you know you you have kids and repeat you know what i mean yeah, yeah. and um and so the fact that i wanted to do you know i figured out what by the time i was like 14 years old i'm like no i'm doing this music thing he's, he's freaking horrified so yeah um you know i mean but he was supportive you know what i mean but he, he just he just frightened him because he didn't want me you know uh not to have the same quality of life as you know as himself and and his siblings and so or, or my siblings 
Right. So um, it was very much of the mindset. Well, if you're going to do this, pal, you better get your shit together and be as good as you possibly can be. And and that that was a big part of it as well. I'm sorry, it was kind of a long answer, but uh, that's that's kind of the the rationale behind it all. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I mean, I, I'm genuinely curious. You know, genuinely curious, and I and I appreciate you sharing about it. And and I think that's like it's such a wonderful thing to have a parent that actually isn't like you know saying don't play guitar because you need to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, um, but just kind of more of the mindset, like this is a fucking hard road. Like it is really hard. Even if, even if you're as, as great as, as, as you are, you know, it's like, it's still really hard. Like it's, it's not for the faint of heart. And, uh, and I'm sure, you know, I know you're sure you've had your heart broken in the business a number of times as, as I have. And it's just, yeah, sometimes it's not even about the music, right? It's just like, man, it's just, so yeah, you want to show, I, I, it really resonates. You know, you really want to, if you're going to do this, yeah, like you make it count, like really be the absolute best and be committed to that. I love that. Right. And, you know, and it's, it's one of those things too, where I've, I've, I've shared it with, you know, two of my daughters, you know, went into theater to an extent and one is still in theater. She's at a, a school out in California right now. And, and, and a buddy of mine called me yesterday talking about how his son was going to do this, this musical troupe that I was in as a senior in high school. I didn't even know what this thing was. It was hysterical. It was called the kids from Wisconsin, Philip, the kids okay. from Wisconsin. Okay. I didn't know what the hell this thing was at all, but you know, this buddy of mine uh, gets a hold of me who had been in it a couple of years. He's like, Hey, you want to do this thing? Kids from Wisconsin. We, we travel all over the state of Wisconsin. There's a tour bus. You play at all these fairs and whatnot. And, uh, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking chicks, tour bus, <laughs> right, party, right. you know what I mean? Right. Next thing you know, I'm at a boot camp for two weeks in sequins and a pirate shirt oh, with flesh tone no. underwear playing, <laughs> playing show tunes. <laughs> and anyway, so this, this buddy of mine, son has a, has a, has a uh, opportunity to do this thing. And, and we, and that just led us talking about a bunch of different things. And this guy who was calling me was actually my one of my first guitar teachers. And we and he has a very similar thing that he says to people that are both to his son and to people that are getting into music. It's like, you know, we're going into the arts, whether it be music or theater, whatever the case may be, the amount of bullshit that you're going to experience at every turn is is so pungent, acrid, and foul that unless the love of what you do so far usurps the negativity you're going to experience from that bullshit, unless you have that love of just that, that no, taking no for an answer, don't even bother. Amen. Amen. And I, I, yes, yes. Sorry, not to, not to interrupt, but yes, yes, yes. But, you know, not to overshare, we don't need to get in details, but was I was served a huge steaming plate of bullshit this morning. And so, yeah, what you're saying is exactly right. Like after we, after we chat, I'm going to grab my guitar and I'm going to play it out because it's just, I love the playing so much that, yeah, I mean, that, that resonates so deeply. And I think, yeah, that's, that's kind of blowing my mind. I mean, that's, ex that's exactly it. It's, it's not about anything external. It's about that, that, that connection from within and the gift of the love of music. Cause not everybody, everybody, you know, we, we all have different things that, that, uh, that, that make us get out of bed each day. And, and I'm grateful that it is music, all that bullshit aside, I am, yeah, it is. It puts the color in the world for me, you know, and, and absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I, and I always like to, cause occasionally, you know, when I'm doing these chats with folk, we'll get, we'll get, we'll kind of go down what could be construed as curmudgeon alley, but, um, uh. <laughs> you know, it's, it, I, I always just say, I am extraordinarily grateful for everything I get to do because knowing what I know about the business, I, I, I know damn well, it could have never, anything could have never happened. You know what I mean? No matter how, good you are, how bad you are, whatever the case may be, um, you know, if you got to stick to your guns, treat people the way you want to be treated and, you know, work your ass off and still nothing could happen in terms of being able to just make a living. So the fact that I'm able to do it, I'm extraordinarily grateful uh, to be able to play my guitar and make a living. But that being said, you know, I always say that, you know, th there just seems to be which I find comical at this point in time, but people always kind of take it as you're being bitter, but I'm not being bitter, but I always like to just say that th I think the layman or the lay person, whatever you want to say, the person who's not involved in the business always assumes that the three or four individuals in a particular genre or whatever that get the nod are the very best. 
And that's the reason why they're at. And I always like to say, no, that's a coincidence. If they're really good, it's a coincidence. But other things had to line up that were more based on superficiality and business decisions and so on and so forth. Um, and so when you share that, it kind of comes off as, oh, you're just bitter because, you know, it's like, no, I was told from a very young age, like, you know, oh, hey, uh, here's my demo and so-and-so knows somebody at a record company. How old are they and what do they look like? You know, you're like, what do you mean? What, what does that mean? And I was like, well, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it can be very painful, very traumatic through the, through the journey of life. And, and, and ultimately, yeah, I think what, what you said also really resonates, you know, trying to treat others as you want to be treated the, to the best of, to the best of the ability, I think being, um, and being accountable with that. And, and it's a privilege to play music so that, you know, in, in a lifetime and, and make a living doing that right now. And so, yeah, the, the, the gratitude is key. It's like, it's at the root of all of it. What, yeah, the gratitude for the love of the music, the gratitude for the opportunity and ability to play music and, and to be a student of music for life. I mean, you know, right. that's, so I, I love, I love the way that, that you can, that you describe that. And it just never gets, it just never gets old. I mean, the first thing, you know, I you get up out of bed, make some coffee, I feed the cats at, you know, 4.30 a.m. sometimes when they rouse me up. First thing I want to do is play guitar. And that never, that never ends. And that is just the most glorious thing of all time. <laughs> it's, a be- it's a beautiful gift. It's a truly a gift to, to be that in love with what you're doing in your life and, uh, you know, with the, the life's journey, to be that in love with your work and your creation and your art. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a gift. Indeed it is, my friend. Well, listen, I've talked your ear off for this hour and 15 minutes that we've been talking about it's been an absolute pleasure it's been fun hanging out with you greg this is really really means a lot to me it's really special i really enjoyed this thank you oh well, my pleasure and hopefully we'll get together and uh, do some playing one of these days in, uh, in, a, in a conducive environment i welcome the opportunity and you know even just playing talking and especially laughing i mean you really you really made me laugh today like really i, I mean that that felt good so thank you well, my pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, let's talk soon. I look forward. All right, Philip, take it easy. Thank you, Greg. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her. <laughs>